marketing is one line on a, on a P&L, being open, but asking for that openness in return. And I think the sooner you can do that in your career as a marketer, the better. Welcome to Tech Marketers Uncorked. Every episode, I share a glass of wine with a leader in the tech marketing field, bringing you the best B2B marketing strategies for you to make your own. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Martin Kennington, Chief Marketing Officer at 365 Business Finance. With an incredibly diverse and extensive background across various sectors in both B2B and B2C spaces, Martin is a seasoned professional in developing innovative and highly effective marketing strategies. Martin's wealth of experience has equipped him with a deep understanding of aligning marketing goals with financial objectives. Join us as we tap into his expertise and explore the strategies and approaches necessary for achieving marketing success while, importantly, keeping stakeholders satisfied. Let's uncork that bottle. Reality TV star Spencer Matthews used to party hard, but as his nights out got bigger, his relationships, mind, and body suffered. Wanting to change and have a healthier lifestyle, Spencer and the team at CleanCo got to work. By using a blend of botanicals, they captured the essence of some of our favorite drinks without the drawback of alcohol. Today, we're tasting Clean G, their non-alcoholic alternative to gin. Well, it certainly smells like gin. It smells amazing, actually. I've had non-alcoholic gin before, and it sometimes it's a bit soapy or a bit sort of dishwatery, but this that smells good. And I had the rum from this brand, the, the sort of Spencer Matthews Clinko thing. It was really good. As long as you have it with something that's got a bit of punch, like a ginger beer, you don't really feel like you're missing the edge. There's a little bit of sweetness to it, a little bit floral. It's, it's a bit like a, um, a tanqueray, maybe. I mean, I'm not a huge gin aficionado, but it's it's probably not a million miles away from that. And actually, there's a gin, which is my favorite, and my wife's called Nordes, which is this Spanish gin. And if you have it with orange and a little bit black pepper, sounds strange. But I think if you had that with this, a bit of kind of Mediterranean tonic, some black pepper and a slice of orange, that'd be really nice. But it's this is good. I think I wouldn't be able to do, without a mixer, I wouldn't be able to do a whole glass of this because I yeah. think it's sort of, no. it's got that, not, not the sort of strength of gin, but it's got that kind of aroma. We're here to talk about your career and stakeholder management, how listeners can help manage some of those more difficult relationships. Tell me a little bit about the beginning days of your career and how you started to like learn about how to manage these relationships. Not everybody knows how to manage relationships, and it's not something that anybody ever really does teach us. No, that's right. You can do, I suppose nowadays there are, there are probably courses in stakeholder management, certainly more in leadership and team management, but very rarely do you see anything that kind of gives you that, particularly early in your career or, or midway in your career that says, this is how you deal with stakeholders. This is how you learn to, I guess, justify marketing in a lot of ways. I started out, originally I was a journalist and then I moved to the dark side of marketing because I thought it looked more fun and could have more, you know, have budgets to play with and do things because as a journalist, you never have any money. And I started off in video games world. So I worked for a couple of companies there that, that make video games and, and publish those. So a lot of that involved some fun stuff going around the world, taking journalists out, showing them the game, doing this sort of direct-to-consumer marketing, which is world away from what I do now. But what was interesting then is we didn't really ever have any metrics other than 
at the end of the day, we'll know how many games we've sold. And that will be down to marketing. It will be down to how well sales are done and everything. But it was never directly attributable to marketing. So we could say, we spent, I don't know, a million pounds marketing this game over the course of six months. But we'd never really know for sure. There was never any really hard and fast sort of metric to know whether if we'd spent twice that, it would have done twice as well, or half that, it would have been half as well. So for the first sort of six years of my career doing that, I was living in this sort of dream world and not having to justify anything and not having to deal with stakeholders as much. And then I moved into the world of finance and banking and, and now in business lending, and it's completely different. So now there's that direct line to the CEO and the CFO, and they are totally bottom line driven. They want the best for the business, but also, like you say, they don't want to spend money and they certainly don't want to spend it unnecessarily. They want to see justification. So you kind of have to learn like you said, on the job and sort of work out how to do it. A lot of it, I think, comes down to being, getting to know them well as individuals and understanding what makes them tick. Because what makes a CMO tick is different to what makes a CEO or a CFO tick. You know, the CEO often has that bigger view of the business and probably has a, a broader understanding of branding and, and how useful that is. Whereas a CFO, we're more focused on what return there is. And on branding, you can't always see an immediate return. Whereas with performance marketing, so PPC, for example, they might look at that and think, okay, yeah, that's an area we can invest some money in because every day we can see the return. We can see that gives you X leads and X conversions, and it's a bit of an easier conversation. But I think you know the, the main thing is really getting them involved as early on as possible. And to build that in your career, I think it's really, as long as you've got a, a company where there's kind of open doors and you can talk to them, don't be scared to go and talk to them, talk to the CFO and say, look, I'm thinking of doing this, or I've done this, and also show them what doesn't work and what does work. Don't be sort of, everything has to be great, everything has to work every time. I think you can show them things and say, we could try this, this is my hypothesis, let's try it with some budget, or we did try this, it didn't work, let's try something else, and just be open with them, because they're, we have challenges, they have challenges, we've got it somewhere sort of meet in the middle. In like the beginning of your career, was there a moment where you really realized how important stakeholder management was? I didn't. I, I think early on, I didn't at all. I just thought, hey, they're giving me a bunch of money. I mean, we did things where we would say, oh, you know, let's fly a bunch of journalists out to Vegas. We'll shoot some guns. This was to promote a video game. We'll take them to some motocross. We'll, we'll do dune buggies around the sand dunes around Vegas and just have a great time. And that was sort of part of marketing. Or we'd say in the really early days, we'd have a line. We'd say, well, we need to spend a couple of thousand on MySpace. I mean, this is how long ago it was. We need a MySpace line and then eventually a Facebook and a Twitter line. So there was never really a big pushdown from the top because particularly in that sort of business, there was a big drive just to go make it as big as possible because it's a very competitive market. I think in the B2B world, it was much harder. So when I was working in banking, there was much more then, even though we were talking to consumers and businesses. I think that's probably, so that's, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago, that, that's when I started understanding. Actually, you know, marketing isn't this sort of dream world where you can do what you want. You do have stakeholders to keep happy. It's not necessarily just your line manager. It goes all the way up. And I, I think when you get that realization, probably I wish I'd had that sooner because then I probably would have been able to do much better, you know, achieve more, get more budgets to do more things and be maybe more innovative. I think early on in the career, it's quite hard to do that. And it's, it's partly dependent, as I say, on the company. If the company is a bit kind of hierarchical and you are a marketing manager or you're an exec or a senior or a social media manager and you're sort of put into a, a pigeonhole if you like it can be difficult to break out of that and think bigger picture you know how do i talk to these stakeholders and get them to understand without my manager getting the hump you know 
it can be difficult. How did you find the transition? Because I feel like it was probably quite a bit of a rude awakening, knowing what I know. You go from the world of gaming where you were just given budget and you could basically do whatever you wanted to the world of B2B marketing because I can't think of any brand that would just be like, oh yeah, just go have fun. Yeah. I mean, I wish they did. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. But it does sound like a bit of a dream world. And then the harsh realities. How did you find that transition and why the hell did you do it? It, it wasn't a bad company in any way, and it was great to have great people, but I was kind of hitting a, a ceiling of where I could go there. And I saw financial services, an opportunity came up, and it was totally left field for me. Because at the time, I was also looking at a drinks brand. I was potentially going to work for them. So I had these two kind of opportunities at the same time. The drinks brand would have been, again, here's a load of money we're going to put on, you know, you'd be responsible for sort of music events and at the time, the early stages of influences and things like that before they even called them that. And it was all this sort of thing that sounded great. And then there was this financial brand that I was working at and it was much more, there was a lot of branding and sponsorship involved, but also some performance stuff. And I thought, well, I've never really done that. And it just seemed a little, it sounds crazy, but it just seemed a bit more compelling and a better trajectory for my career. I wasn't sort of thinking this would be more fun. It was kind of, you know, longer term view, I suppose. You sort of fall to earth with a bit of a thud and you realize, like you say, yeah, you don't have all of this stuff to play with and you've got to hit metrics. And it was the first time then that I really sat down and started falling in love with Excel because you have to. You've got to learn to love Excel. You know, you've got to start thinking like the CFO and think, okay, I'm going to look at every line of, of what I spend. I'm going to look at leads or return or share a voice or whatever the metric is that we're looking at um, and understand myself first, like really get into it. What does it mean? How are we doing? How do we improve? How do we maintain? To try to get into that mindset of the person who actually controls the money and understand. But now, I mean, I've been in this space for 10, 10 12 years, something like that in, in finance now. And I think it's, it's such an exciting space to be in fintech. You know, it's where there's a lot of innovation you can attract really good talent into businesses now. Yeah, I think like that sometimes. I think, oh, it'd be great to be in B2C where, you know, not have to prove every single pound that's ever spent. But then, you know, also I love the B2B world. Most brands are quite behind the times when it comes to marketing and are perhaps even just getting started, even though mm -hmm. they might be big global companies. So, I mean, there's greater yeah. room for growth and like, opportunities when you're really building. That's exciting. I mean, that's exciting on your side as well. When you have a client who is new, it was a similar thing when we started working together was we had never done at 365 any real thought leadership or strong content marketing that wasn't sort of purely just thinking we need an SEO page that sort of works. It was very much written for Google as opposed to written for people. And it was, it was the wrong strategy at the time. And then we started working with you and it was, it was, probably a similar feeling where you looked at us and saw, okay, well, this is how we can almost do it from scratch. You know, you've got a kind of blank slate to play with here and you can really make a difference. So I guess probably on your side as well, you see as a marketer, as a, you know, content specialist as well, you, you see where you can make a change, how you can make a difference. And the difference is probably more noticeable as well, because there are direct results sort of attributable to everything. And it's not sort of like, oh, we'll do a load of you know, we'd all have to do a load of content writing for Coca-Cola or whoever like that. But how would you ever really know how much of a difference any individual piece has? Because it's such a huge kind of machine. How do you, I mean, when you want to do something new, how do you get the CFO to sign off on it? Generally, I tend to try to work within a rule of 5% rule. 
So any amount of budget that you have for any amount of time, whether that's a, a month or a quarter or a year, try to carve off 5% for testing. And that can allow for any kind of new activity because if you go to your CFO and you say, I need £20,000 next month to do ads on whatever or do this new activity, they're always going to say, well, why? How do you know it's going to work? You know, And we can't just sort of give a hypothesis of, well, I think it will. I think we're going to be just like Duolingo on TikTok if we do a load of content and ads there. It's like, no, we're not that brand. So it's not going to happen. You know, We're not going to be like, or Gymshark or someone who's done really well or spend a load of money creating a new mascot or something like you, you wouldn't, you know, we'd have no idea. So I think having that understanding with them and a barrier yourself of say 5% where you go, that's what I'll use to test. And you know, it's a test, so it might work, might not. And then you scale. So you use that 5%, you test on that campaign or that channel, that activity. If it starts to show fruit, you increase it, you keep it going. So the only real way you can do it is you can't rely on the CFO or the CEO or anybody else just to go, well, you've been doing this for so long, you must know, particularly if it's a new channel or new activity, because they'll think this is a bit, you know, a bit scary. I mean, there's brands that companies I've worked at in the past as well, who've been very scared of being on social channels or having staff talk on social channels. And you think nowadays you think that's crazy. You want people doing it all the time, but brands and companies sometimes don't think like that. They just see risk, whether it's monetary risk or reputational risk. So. I think trying to prove the model first with a small budget to test tends to be the way that's worked for me in the past, and hopefully that will continue. There's a lot of fear in B2B marketing. A lot of these brands are working in very heavily regulated spaces or are set up by very technical people. So they're set up by people who are very left brain, they're brilliant, they're really good at software development or whatever it is, but they're not necessarily good at actually at like taking the risk required to grow the business. So then they end up relying a lot on like word of mouth. Not only gets you so far. So I mean, how do you overcome that fear? There's something inherent, I think, in anybody who comes into marketing of this gut instinct. So I always like to, you know, on my LinkedIn profile, it would say I'm a data-driven marketer or something like that. You know, I'll put something fluffy up there. But really what it means is I try to use data to justify everything that we do, or I use data to make decisions. So we'll say, okay, a lot of our consumers are in, a lot of our potential clients are in a certain area, so let's focus on that and we'll do some geo-targeted PPC ads or whatever the, the tactic might be. But I think to get rid of the fear, you've got to also have that um, belief in yourself because you've been a marketer for X number of years, you've worked in various industries, you kind of know what's going on, but you have to kind of marry it with the fear that the CFO has and the CEO has and anybody else who might think, okay, we can't just sort of let them run wild. But I think it's really about just being, having faith in yourself, being a bit bold. So even if it's within that 5% constraint, well, maybe you go broader and you just go, Do you know what, let's just try something big. So for our company, we've just done undergone a big rebrand and that's a big risk for us because you can lose a lot of your brand equity. It's not a cheap activity to do as well. People may like the brand, they may not like the brand, but it was a kind of bold decision, put together the business case, you talk it through with all of the key stakeholders and the board. And if everyone's up for it and they go, yeah, it's the right time to do it, which in our case was the case, we could be bold and we can really refresh what we're doing. But it's difficult because you'll always have doubt in yourself, particularly if you try something and you run a test and it doesn't quite work. Or you have a hypothesis and you think, yeah, you know, I really should be doing ads on a given channel. Let's say I want to do ads on, on Reddit. And we're expecting tons to come back from that. And maybe it doesn't happen straight away. You might doubt yourself and pull back too soon. 
So I think you've got to, yeah, have a little bit of faith in yourself. First of all, get, get rid of the fear in yourself, because if you go into this and you're a bit sort of trepidatious or half-assed in how you present it further up the chain, they'll kind of sense it and they'll think, well, you're not really behind this yourself. So, you know, I, I'm not going to support it. But if you go in there, you've looked at everything, you kind of understand holistically how that will help the business or the brand, then you've got a much better chance of getting payoff at the end of it and, and having support. Yeah. And there's a lot of marketing that's difficult to measure. It's not possible to like measure every single element of how it might impact. You can't necessarily measure, you know, the quality of the thoughts that somebody's having when they're reading your example. So it's difficult to kind of measure all of this. So how do you how do you get that data and how do you measure on something that isn't isn't as simple as TPC where you spend X and you get Y? I think that and um, that whole attribution question is such a difficult thing to solve and it's probably the hardest thing for anybody who's looking at analytics, reporting and data and marketing to get their heads around completely. Because like you say, there's some channels that are fairly hard and fast. You know, you'll know that it's come from from this and you can directly attribute spend to return. For something like SEO, I mean, for us, I guess I'll give you an example. I used to work for a consumer finance brand and we spent an enormous amount on PPC and it was very successful, wasn't earth shattering, but it was well within kind of expectations of what we wanted and we got the return from it. But we always thought at the time, well, how do we push it further? And every time you pushed it further, you'd sort of start to get to the point of diminishing returns. And so it would have a kind of a ceiling and we really wanted to push things further on. So we invested a lot then on SEO, on content, thought leadership, PR, building the brand. So the stuff that we hadn't really done yet at that point, and it paid off. And we had to set the expectation that you're not going to get tons of leads month one, month two, month three, whatever it is, you know, but we saw it in the business, not just the number of leads, the number of sort of quality leads that were coming through after three, four, five months and that sustaining. But also we started getting calls from newspapers saying, we want to talk to your CEO about the product that you're selling because we've seen you in other areas. We see your brand is bigger. It helped us to get into the broker market. So people who were introducing business as source as bigger than we were, perhaps we were quite a small team at the time. It helped us get staff. So the, the, all these sort of slightly less tangible things that actually really helped to do. And there it really helped having a set into at the time it was a CEO and a CFO who really understood that actually the brand was, was sort of fairly weak at the time and almost non-existent and it really needed a push. I mean, for them now, for that business, the benefits are still paying off. They're still seeing return. They're still running that sort of activity and it still works. I mean, there are various ways you can part attribute things as well. So often people will have a first click or a last click attribution model and they'll say, well, it's all just down to this. Whereas we try to do what we call kind of an assist model, which is um, basically a blended model where you'll say, well, we know that they came to us through this because that's what the UTM says and the click says coming through to our website. So we know it came from this ad, for example. But hey, we also sent them a letter two months ago and we sent them an email a month ago. And actually, look, they've read three of our articles in the last month. You sort of build up this kind of picture and then you understand that you probably need all of those to complete the purchase journey. You won't necessarily know which one, but you kind of attribute some value to each of them and probably the most value to the last one that gets them over the line and maybe the first one they saw, but everything in that journey gets attributed. So there are ways to, particularly for SEO, to kind of build picture of its of its value. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially in B2B marketing where like, you know, you're looking at much longer sales cycles and much 
bigger relationships because you're trying to sell something that has a higher value. So, you know, if somebody buys a million pound piece of software and it doesn't work, uh, you know, they could lose their jobs. And it's not very easy to get rid of after. You can't yeah. just return it. So, I mean, the relationship in B2B sales cycle is far more intense because they really need to be able to trust you to be able to make such a big purchase, to make a purchase that has such higher risk. And then you need to think about how you support them over that period. So if it's going to take them six to nine months to like finally convert, I mean, what are all those touch points? You're probably definitely going to need more than two. So what what is that picture and how do you build that? How do you build that relationship? I think that's really important, but I've met so many marketing managers and CMOs who get into really terrible positions where like the CEO completely does not believe in marketing. So they can't get any budget. They're not given any tools to do what they need to do. And I mean, my advice most of the time to people like that is you should probably just leave. You can lead a horse to water all you want, but you can't make it drink. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think there's, you know, you can end up with that, a bit of a syndrome of banging your head against the wall. And if somebody is in that mindset that whatever you do, you can't change it, you know, you can't sort of pull the sword out of the stone and be the best marketer you can be. You'll never learn because if you're stuck in a place where you're so restricted, and you're kind of in a box and, and there's no room for growth and development and success, if they're stopping you from being able to succeed, then absolutely, yeah, you've got to move on. You've got to try somewhere else that's going to empower you and, and trust you to, to do what you do as a marketer. I guess one of the challenges is perhaps knowing beforehand whether or not it's going to be a good work environment for you know, the marketing that you might want to do for that organization. I mean, what kind of red flags would you look out for? You've always got to, almost like an investor does your business, you've got to do a bit of due diligence. Just look at the business, look at their channels now. And if they say, you know, we're so hot on social, we're great on customer service, look at the social, look at the trust pilot reviews, look at all this sort of stuff and see whether that's their own perception or whether that's actually reality and whether they really are kind of what they think they are. But also ask them direct questions. So every, every job I've ever gone to in marketing, I've always asked, what's your marketing budget? And it's a fair question because if they say, if you get the sort of wishy-washy, well, we kind of want you to come in and prove it and then you'll get a budget going forward, you'll never get budget. You know, they're never going to give you anything. What are you going to do, spend your own money? You know, it's not going to happen. So I think if they say, yeah, we're really committed to this. So currently we're spending X a month and we actually see it really scaling up. But, you know, see what you can do with X and, and then scale up. Or they might already be in a position where they say, well, look, we're a business that we're doing really well, but we're going to need an equity raise in a year's time. So we need this brand to be much bigger. Then you think, great, I know exactly what to do here. That means they're going to have some money to, to play with here to build that brand for the longer term goal of creating a bigger brand, them doing an equity raise or whatever it is they might want to do. So I think be really honest with them. And that, I think that's at every level. If you're just starting marketing and you're a digital marketing exec or whether you're a senior or head of or CMO, whatever it is, you've got to ask the question, You know, what's, what's the budget here? Also, what's your sort of level of sign off? So can you say, you're, you're the CMO, you're the head of marketing, this is the budget we'll have, it's really down to you to define how to spend it. And that's how it should be, because you're the expert in that field and you know, you'll, you'll have a team there or you'll build a team that will support that. If they say, this is your budget, but yeah, everything has to go through all these layers of approval or procurement and all the rest of it, and it's sort of too onerous. Again, I'd, I'd probably start moonwalking out of the room because I would think, okay, these are good control freaks and I'm gonna say, I wanna try this and they'll say, no, you know, we've been sending carrier pigeon messages for six months and it's worked really well. Why would we change? So I think that's the that's the challenge. And I think it's it's like you say, you've got to know when to walk away as well and sort of let those things go because 
sometimes it, it can look a bit too good to be true. So you've really got to dig into it. But the main thing is understand the budget, understand who's there. If you ever can, and a lot of companies say no to this, always ask why the last person left as well. I think that's kind of with any job. Why did they go? But if you can connect with them, maybe through LinkedIn and sort of ask them the question, some people will respond to that and they'll sort of say, well, you know, it's great or wasn't for me or I moved or whatever it is. And you'll find a kind of good reason why. But generally, yeah, you, you've got to sort of do your due diligence as much as you would any any company would do on you as well. Yeah. I mean, and then once you're through the door, there are situations that you have to navigate. So, I mean, I know at your time at 365, you know, you, you've led the company through the pandemic and the war in Ukraine and, you know, you're leading it through the recession at the moment. So, I mean, once you're in the door, once you already, you know, are building those relationships, you know, how do you continue to do stakeholder management when the chips are down or there's external circumstances that you can't control? I think a lot of it's down to still fostering those relationships with everyone at exact level. So making sure that they're, you're aware of their challenges as much as they're aware of yours, because I can sort of bang the drum on, on marketing all day long there and say, we need to do more, we need to do more. But you've got to understand the sort of, like you said, pandemic, the war, the recession, you know, everything that's going on that can affect things. And they might say, these are valid reasons why we have to cut budget for a, a set period of time or pull back on some activity for a set period of time. Um, because nothing to do with how well a channel is performing. So they might say, well, let's just hold back on performance marketing for a short while because right now we have to be on sort of budget retainment mode. At the CEO level, at the CFO level, they're really thinking much more fundamentally, you know, we have big costs as a business, there's staff, there's power, there's whatever it is, you know. So try to get into their mindset as much as possible, I think. How, how would you recommend getting into their mindset and understanding? I mean, I know from experience, actually, because I've gone from being a marketer to being a CEO. And I know that, you know, what I think about these days is quite different than what I thought about when I was a copywriter. It's a twofold approach. It's probably the first way is as much as you need to be open with the CEO and the CFO about your challenges or your aspirations or what you think marketing can do and bring to the business. You need them to be open as well. And you need to say to them, look, this is sort of me, all my guts on the table, and this is everything we are as marketing, everything we can be. And this is what we do if we spend more, this is what we'd be if we spend less, and, and so on. Give them all that. But then ask for that return. So it needs to be a two-way sort of process. So they need to be able to come back to you and say, this is all great. I agree or I disagree or whatever their response is. However, these are the conditions of the market. You know, the things that you might not even be aware of at the time, and you'd have no idea that the business is going through you know they might say oh, actually you know we're really focused this year in fact we're going to go we're going to expand into america okay well that fundamentally changes everything then because you as a marketer had your six months 12 month plan thinking we're going to do this this and this and if they say we're going to expand into america so we need to carve off 20 million quid to do it you've then got to think okay well that changes everything we're doing here does that mean we're reducing what we're doing here to become a bigger player over there so kind of understand the mindset they have and, and what they're after, but also get involved in those conversations, the strategic conversations, because a CEO, so, you know, at our business, CEO, the COO, CFO, and chief commercial officer, we all sit at that level and we have these conversations, which we don't necessarily talk about very individual things like marketing campaigns or anything like that. It's a much higher level conversation about the business and the strategy. And like you say, it's looking at the kind of P&L as an overall thing, because Marketing is one line on a, on a P&L, being open, but asking for that openness in return. And I think the sooner you can do that in your career as a marketer, the better, 
because you've got a much better understanding. And also you get a lot more trust back from them because they'll see that you're not just interested in your department, if you like, and the success of that, because everybody wants for their career to have done these great campaigns and won these, you know, pencils and awards and things like that. But actually, and that's great for your career and also great for the business you're at, but that might not be what the strategy of the business is after. So you need to kind of play the game with that as well, I think. But what a lot of companies do sometimes is they don't even have a CMO, they just have a marketing manager who's expected to run all of it. What would you say to listeners who perhaps aren't at the CMO level yet? You know, how how do they get that seat at the table if there hasn't been one created or it's occupied by somebody else? You've got to be, you know, for for want of a better word, be a bit, a little bit aggressive about it and and kind of push. Don't you don't have to necessarily push the agenda of I want to do this, I want more budget or everything. But it's kind of again reporting openly and honestly as high up as the change you can, trying to get inside that room or, or you know that seat at the table. Or at least be on the agenda when they're talking about it. Because if you're not in the room, at least give them the information so they're fully informed. So there's not a kind of discussion at C-suite level where they said, well, we need to start putting red lines through things. Okay, well, marketing, well, let's just cut that by half. Great, we've just saved a load of money. You know, kind of how it works without thinking long-term view. So I think really build and model things as well. Build models. So build a model of what marketing looks like now, what you're spending, what you're bringing in, how successful it is. Get that relationship with the, the heads of sales or, you know, if that's relevant to your organization and understand the sort of full life cycle and the lifetime value of, of your clients, of who you're bringing in or who you're sending your product to. Build those models out and then build out models of, well, what would happen if we dropped it by 25%? What would happen if we increased it by 50%? And build those models and then you've got a bit of ammunition and it's data-based. It's not just sort of a gut feeling, it's data-based because you can say, well, we know when you drop by this amount, it reduces our lead level to this, which reduces our conversion level to this, which means that in six months' time, the revenue we get from that will be this much lower. And then we also won't get any repeat business, so it'll be even lower still. But I hear what you're saying. I think it's very difficult if that door is closed to you to get in there and really set it because you're, as a marketer, you're the best person to sort of sell your department, if you like, and your activities. But at the very least, if you can arm them, arm the you know, the CEO, the CFO, whoever's having those conversations, arm them with as much data and information. I mean, you've got to remember a lot of these people would probably come from an accountancy world and they'll they'll know P&Ls like the back of the hand. So present it like a P&L, get them to understand it, speak their language, really. And sometimes you've got to learn that off the hoof. And as much as we'd all just like to be more gut instinct marketers, we've got to sort of use the data to our advantage and present it that way. Thank you, Martin, for joining me on Tech Marketers Encore. You can find out more about Martin by following him on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Catherine Strachan, CEO of Coffeehouse, an award-winning B2B content marketing agency for fast-growing fintech and technology brands. If you're looking for a place to pick up the best marketing insights in 2023, our specialist at Coffeehouse got you covered. Find us at coffeehouse.io. The link's in the show notes. Tech Marketers Uncorked is produced by Fascinate Productions. See you next time.